This is Lives, and I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. My guest today is singer Shelby Van Nordstrand. I think that's why we're here, right? That's a big part of being human is to share stories and connect with one another. And that's always what we're doing in music. And that has been a really important part of my development as an artist and career is thinking about telling the stories that only I can tell, you know, from my experiences. Soprano Shelby Van Nordstrand has appeared as a soloist with a wide range of ensembles and companies, including Lauren Mazel's Castleton Festival, New York Lyric Opera Theatre, Opera Omaha, Omaha Symphony, Cedar Rapids Opera Theatre, and the Simon Estes Young Artist Programme. And Nordstrand is passionate about connecting song and opera repertoire to today's audience. Her recital project, The Giving Voice Project, Ophelia, examines the gendered oppression of Hamlet's Ophelia from a 21st century viewpoint through song, opera and dance. She continues to share her love of song across the globe at many locations, including Indonesia, Japan, China, Hawaii and Lithuania. She is an alumnus of the Songfest program and is Associate Professor of Voice, Vocal Area Coordinator and Director of Opera at the University of Nebraska at Omaha. Shelby Van Nordstrand, welcome to Lives. Thanks so much. It's my pleasure to be here. What are your very first musical recollections? And, and it could span the gamut from classic, pop, um, folk, traditional, I don't know. But what are your first musical recollections? The first thing that I'm thinking about is my experience with music through dance. Because I started taking dance lessons when I was three years old. And I remember that I was chosen to lead the class on stage because they told us to take bigger steps to the music. And so somewhere in the universe, there's a video of me as a three-year-old taking these gigantic steps and leading the whole class on. Um, And I'm trying to remember what music we danced to it was some, you know, children's song. But I remember in in our house growing up, we had a record player. And some of the records that my parents had were Anne Murray, The Beatles. Those are two that I'm remembering. And there was also a jazz recording that we played a lot. I don't remember the artist. Um, and I remember just playing those and dancing around the living room. So those are sort of my earliest musical recollections. Do you remember how you felt as that three-year-old performing as a dancer? Uh, You've described the big steps. And so you can clearly recollect that uh, to some degree of clarity, I I guess. I want to say that I felt joyful. And I'm not sure if I can actually remember that feeling or if it's, you know, looking back at the memory now. But it was joyful and I felt confident felt confident and proud to be out there on that stage. And maybe it's because I was so young, I didn't know anything else. Or maybe I just caught the bug that young, the performing bug. You know, I loved it. So I want to explore that then, um, because I'm I'm curious about the motivation to your journey. So three years old is is pretty young to actually 
pick that as the point at which you think, that was the epiphany. I knew as a three-year-old <laughs> that music was going to be my life. Um, do you have a standout moment or perhaps a slow burn when you came to realize that music had more for you than, than its innate value for us all as humans? It was such a big part of my entire youth. Of course, the dance at three, and then I kept dancing, and then I was in our church children's choir starting in kindergarten or first grade, and I started taking piano lessons in second grade. And I think one of the important parts about this story is that my mom wanted to take dance lessons when she was young and didn't have the opportunity. And so that was really important for her to give me that opportunity. And that's why I started taking dance at three, right? Because she wanted me to. Um, and I loved it. But I think one thing fed into the, into the next, right? And then I loved piano. I just loved it. I loved taking the music on the page and filtering it through my brain and figuring out what keys to push and sort of the mathematics of all of that I loved. Um, the counting, all of it. And then it just became part of my identity. You know, I loved doing it. And so I did it more and more. And then I started playing clarinet in fifth grade. And from there, it really just, it, it was something I did. It was my activity, you know. And so I was in band and choir and dancing. And I was drawn to all of those things. I have to pick up on that word you used, which is identity. And I wonder if you're able to describe how you see your identity, how you describe yourself in the context of music, either writ large or specifically? That's a great question. Mm. It is a part of my identity and being a musician also feels like having a relationship with music <laughs> that is uh, giving and can also be frustrating and all of the things like a relationship you'd have with a human. Um, but as far as my my identity, I think when you're young, you gravitate towards things that give you confidence and that you tend to be good at. And that was music for me. And so it just became part of who I was and what I did. People knew me as, oh, she's the person that does music or, oh, Shelby, how's your music going? And this, that and the other. Um, I've thought about it in a little bit different terms in the last week because I'm on sabbatical this semester. And so this is the first time in 36 some years I haven't gone back to school in the fall. And uh, I miss sitting at the piano for most of the day and teaching. Even in this first week back, I miss it. And, and so I've been able to explore it in different ways as my identity this week, just sitting at the piano on my own, having all of this time to practice unencumbered. It's so fantastic. So that's been a sign to me that even if I, I wasn't working as a musician, I think there's something in my body that craves that music making that I would sit down and do it every day anyway. When did you realize that you were good? I think there's a difference oh. between being a child that can do anything because children can do anything fearlessly. Yes. Doesn't mean that at a certain point we don't realize that actually we love something, mm -hmm. but we're not necessarily going to be able to exploit a gift or a specific talent in that. And I'm wondering when you realize, oh, not only do I enjoy this, I've been doing it since I was three, but I'm, I'm really good and I can make something of this. Well, the make something of this was always a question, right? Can I do it? That was the big question. And 
everybody encouraged me to try it. And so I thought, well, okay, I'm going to try it. But I think growing up, I did a lot of competitions. One of them in Iowa was the Bill Riley Talent Search. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's still going on today. But they would come to county fairs or local events and they'd put on a talent show. And there was a Sprouts division for the young kids and a senior division for up to, I think, age 21. And then people would place for second, third. And then you got to go to the state fair and perform. And then it was kind of the same tiered thing. You would go on to the semifinals and the finals. And so that was one way in which I thought, oh, maybe I'm good at this because there was this competitive element, right, that that told me, oh, well, the judges picked me over these people, so I must be better, <laughs> which is not always a great system. Uh, now I, I don't like to subscribe to that in music. I just like to try to enjoy everybody's creative expression, right? But as a child, that was something that told me like, oh, maybe I can do this because other people think I'm good at it. Um, but then I would say probably when I went to college or when I was a senior and I was graduating and I was auditioning for music scholarships and I was awarded music scholarships, that was another sign for me that maybe this, I could make something of it or I could at least try. So uh, lots of little, little things along the way like that. You've performed all over the world with traditional and classical forms of, of music. So what is it that you love about those forms? Well, again, for me, I think it's all storytelling, but about the classical form specifically, I love all of the elements. And opera is sort of the mountaintop for me because it brings together so many art forms, right? Theater, dance, classical music, all of it there. But when I was growing up in a small town in rural Iowa, I didn't have any exposure to opera. I learned about opera when I went to college. I don't know. I think um, there was something about all those elements coming together in opera, that storytelling that I was so drawn to and just loved. I'm going to come back to that word storytelling because you've used it a few times. and I, mm -hmm. I have a sense that it's important to you. Absolutely. Um, is there an opera and perhaps even a specific role or piece that you really love for some reason? Is there a piece that an audience, it would be the first piece that you would say to an audience, if you only listen to one piece of opera, this is the thing? Oh, I don't think I could choose one. <laughs> um, I will tell a quick story about getting my Starbucks barista to come to an opera I was in. Um, it was so fantastic. I live in Council Bluffs, and so I was going to the Starbucks there about every day and striking up friendly conversations with the baristas. And I told them that I was in this show at Opera Omaha, and they should come see it. And they said, yeah, we want to come. We're going to do it. And so they did. And it was um, Madam Butterfly, one of my favorite memories is after the show was over I went back to Starbucks the next week and said what did you think of the show and <laughs> the barista said that Pinkerton was such a jerk I was so mad at him for the way he treated Chocho San and it was this wonderful moment where we were having a conversation about Madame Butterfly and the characters and their stories and their <laughs> humanity in the Council Bluff Starbucks so 
No, I don't think there's there's one story, but there are some that are maybe easier. And I've um, thought about this a lot because a lot of my family and friends are not drawn to opera um, initially. And so thinking about what are the stories that would draw people in first to opera, I feel like Pagliacci is a good one. And that's because I was in that show in the chorus of opera Omaha and people came and it's shorter and there's a lot of action and um, verismo, right? So people loved that. But I don't know if there's a bad one, probably one that's that's really long because <laughs> our attention spans are short now. So your bio does reference your passion to connect today's audiences with traditional forms, song, opera. And I'm guessing it has something to do with stories, but why do you have that passion and what are you trying to communicate to mm -hmm. today's audience? Yeah, so I think this journey started for me in thinking about some of the mad scenes in the operatic literature. And for listeners that maybe aren't familiar with mad scenes, they're usually a scene where there's usually soprano, um, goes mad or crazy, usually because of circumstances or actions of others in the story. And these Shanas are so famous because they're real tour de forces. And that's what initially drew me to them musically. Um, I think also being a clarinetist, I learned a lot of virtuosic music. And so I love to do that in my singing as well. And so I was really drawn to the bel canto repertoire and these mad scenes where these characters are singing, you know, high E flats, or now to be funny, sometimes people call them high cues. <laughs> but singing these really extreme ranges and super fast notes, melismatic things all over the place to express this extreme emotion or tragedy of the scene. So as I was drawn into that music at first, I was just learning it because I was fascinated with the music. And then as I took a step back and started to think about the stories that were being told, I thought, oh, this is not great <laughs> because we're showing that women under pressure just break from reality. They can't take the pressure. And that to me didn't resonate because I've always seen myself as a strong person. And so this idea of being weak or just succumbing and victimized didn't resonate with me. And so I struggled with that and I thought, well, okay, here I am, somebody living in the 21st century who's drawn to this music of the 19th century, but living in a totally different reality as a woman than when this music was written. And so how can I reconcile this, right? It, it was really a soul-searching thing and continues to be. It's like one answer is, well, we just don't perform that music anymore. And I, I know colleagues that have chosen that, right? That's, that's an answer. That's a valid answer. Um, for me, I thought, well, how can I continue? Is, is there any value in continuing to tell these stories but to sort of dissect or to be curious, to think about how do we as a 21st century audience see this story as different? And that sort of leads me to the Ophelia project. And I was never interested in the character of Ophelia because 
I'm sorry to say that I wrote her off as a wallflower character. Would you give us a sense of the story? So it's Shakespeare's uh, Hamlet. Hamlet. Yeah. And Ophelia is a key character in that. Mm-hmm. But she forms part of this, dare I say, tradition of what you've described as the mad or crazy woman who loses the plot in some way and is written off mm-hmm. um, in that sense. So would you maybe just add a little context and then yeah. and then maybe we can explore that project, the Giving Voice project about her? Yeah, sure. So as I sort of read the play and thought more about Ophelia in the context of Hamlet, um, not just in the operatic interpretations, right? Ophelia is Hamlet's girlfriend, and he treats her like crap, right? And then she's treated very poorly by her father and her brother. And then at the at the end of her story, she goes to Queen Gertrude, uh, and she's horrible to Ophelia and and doesn't reciprocate or doesn't help her. And then the next we see she's in her, quote, mad scene or she's committing suicide by going in the river. And so that's a little context, very short context, I think. You know, at first I'm like, oh, well, Ophelia just commits suicide And then I thought, no, that's so unfair. Like you have to really dissect all these interactions and and think about how did she get to that point, right? And the more I thought about her story, I, uh, oh, I'm gonna maybe tear up a little bit, but I thought, wow, maybe that was actually strength for her because it was her only choice that she could make autonomously. And that's, really horrible to think about that somebody's best choice is suicide that can't be right (laughs) I don't want to think that's right as a human so anyway I started thinking about how can we tell Ophelia's story and try to tell some of these gendered perspectives or these things that happened to her that maybe we're we're so used to a typical narrative that we don't see it we don't see, we don't think about, oh, she was treated poorly by all of these people. And that really compounded in her story. So that that was where that came from. And, and I think the end result, hopefully, is that by telling this story, maybe it can become an antidote to others that are, are feeling that way. What was the creative process for you? And, and what was the, the creative outcome of this new examination of Ophelia. Um, You didn't just take an old opera and recraft it. You created something completely new to to raise this question about Ophelia and how we might consider her position differently. Yeah. Well, I had a great collaborator who is my dear friend, Jeremy Blair, and is also my (laughs) in-law. So it's really fantastic because we'll, you know, spend Thanksgiving day afternoon dreaming up projects like this or talking talking we're having literally having this conversation he, and he's a dancer he's a modern dancer and choreographer some of his research is about gender normative views in dance and so we we were a good pair and we came together and just just like this started having a conversation about Ophelia and Hamlet the play and um, all of these factors 
and thought, like, how do we think about this as 21st century humans? And we wrote out a list of questions. And then we turned that into a workshop that we took to our students, or I guess we, we this was a project at University of Nebraska, Omaha. We've also done it at University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley, and took the workshop and had people thinking about specifically about gender and um, where they fall on a, quote, gender normative definition and what are the what's the binary and the non-binary and all of all of exploring this and then specifically related to Ophelia's experience. Um, and so that we did the workshop, which then led into the performance. And in the performance, the first uh, piece that we programmed was Tori Amos's Ophelia. In this, Jeremy took the participants from the workshop and had them doing these little vignettes, little scenes where one person is literally shaping the other into these positions sort of to show this is how society shapes us without us even really realizing into these gendered perspectives or experiences. And um, so that was a really kind of a neat way to connect the workshop and the exploration and our questions into a new performative element and then yes creating a new narrative by creating our own recital program is its own process thinking about who's written about Ophelia right and uh, which of those stories do we want to take or pieces and how can we piece that together to tell a narrative that hopefully will resonate with the audience that's a little bit about how we went about that so you clearly then have a strong affinity with traditional song, opera, and also its capacity to tell stories that have resonance with today's social needs in some way, but not to do so uncritically, not just to duplicate and keep repeating those forms, but to question them as well and involve us yeah. in that questioning. Um, you're talking to someone who is a believer in the pleasure of opera, but I don't know necessarily enough about opera as such to see some of those deeper connections that you're trying to draw. So are there other um, connections or messages that you're trying to illuminate for a modern audience? Well, maybe it is question everything, be curious. And that's uh, um, something that I love about classical music or all music is that we can all enjoy it in whatever way we want. Right. And so for you saying you listen to opera for pleasure, that's wonderful. <laughs> you know, do that and experience experience it that way. I think for me, this has just evolved from a place. Maybe maybe I used to just listen to opera for pleasure. And then I started questioning or, or thinking and it just took a different path, you know, for for my exploration and curiosity and creativity and that's how I got to that point. But I don't think there's ever a wrong way to experience art or, or love art or listen to art. Um, so I hope that no one's feeling like that's list, might be listening is, is feeling like, oh, well, I'm listening to music wrong. No, of course not. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I just I think that's how it came about for me is maybe I'm just naturally a very questioning person or curious person. And that feeds into the creativity I will say there was a moment when I was 
doing a lot of auditions and I was in New York City outside, you know, in, in the um, in the audition space building and I was next on deck and I was in the hallway and I was listening to the person in the room before me and I thought, wow, they sound great. And okay, side note, everybody sounds great through the door. <laughs> for any musician listening, like don't let that get in your mind because everybody sounds great through the door. But I thought, wow, this person sounds great. If I don't get this job in X opera as X character, somebody else will, and they will do a great job because there's no shortage of really well-trained singers, especially sopranos. And I thought, gosh, maybe I need to focus more or want to focus more on the stories that only I can tell. And so that was kind of a turning moment for me. I think that was probably the last audition I took in New York City to to try to um, get roles as an opera performer. And I just sort of let that go. And I don't know that that's necessarily gone forever. Maybe I'll come back to that at some point in my career or life, but, um, but yeah, that, that thought of, oh, I, there's something in me that I want to try to express to the world that only I can express. And that's what I think I should be focusing on right now, instead of trying to plug into someone else's production or something like this. I think many of us underestimate what it takes to be a singer. Many of us, I think, have an understanding of what it takes, for example, to be an athlete. Mm. Rigorous uh, attention to our diet, to our health, to our sleeping, doing uh, physical routines that nurture and nourish and exercise our bodies. I think the same is probably true for singers. But what does that look like? 100%. You're so right on. I think of singers as vocal athletes. And yes, the singers that I know that are singing professionally every day, or when I was doing a lot of that, I (laughs) was thinking about my diet, my sleep, my exercise, my practice, how many hours a day am I using my voice, Um, even things such as, you know, I can't go out to dinner tonight because I practiced Um, so much today and my voice is tired and I have to have vocal rest or things like I'm uncomfortable going to Thanksgiving with my family because I don't know how all the food was prepared and I can't afford to get sick because I have a gig next weekend. (laughs) There's a lot that goes into it that you're exactly right. People don't see or don't think about. And it's it's great to see the finished product, right? The recital. I made a post once on my Instagram about, you know, here's the recital day and this looks so glamorous, but what you don't see is all the nights I spent practicing in my room while my family was doing something else together or all the, you know, all the sacrifice. Yeah. There's so much of it, just like an athlete. I, or I think very similar to being a, an athlete, a professional athlete. There are probably some pretty interesting nuances to how you live your life. You use the word compromise there. Mm -hmm. 
I'm wondering what kind of, um, what to others might seem like weird human practices, mm. but for you, they're an essential part of maintaining the pristine physical health of your vocal cords. That's really great for me to reflect on because it's such a habit now that I don't think I think about it in those terms anymore. But yes, um, eating late at night is a big thing that singers don't do usually because it can cause acid reflux. So that's that's a big um, no-no, of course, because you don't want <laughs> the acid coming up on your vocal folds. It's not helpful. Um, some, some singers don't do any alcohol. I know lots of singers that do do alcohol, you know, in within reason, but it is, it does dehydrate you. So you have to be really careful about that. All these vocal health and hygiene things, um, we learn in our degree programs or we learn, uh, after the fact and uh, conferences and things like that. So yeah, there's a lot of vocal health and hygiene things that we learn and then should <laughs> should should follow. One thing that I think is interesting is that um, people always say, oh, singers shouldn't do dairy or milk. I find that that doesn't bother me at all. I can drink copious amounts of coffee and be okay as long as I'm also drinking water. Um, if I eat anything really dry like pretzels or almonds before I go on to sing, I feel like I'm choking. So I avoid that. Um Gosh, there's just things on and on and on and on. And I do notice like as far as cardio work that if I do cardio the day before a performance, I feel more connected to my breath and um, and better. Like I can do better work. I think that's another important part of this is I imagine that there's a physicality to it too. So we've talked a little about the nutritional aspects, you know, what goes inside. But there's also that part of it that would seem to involve strengthening parts of the body or making them flexible like your chest and your lungs and and I don't know maybe how you hold your your head and your neck and mm -hmm. that maybe demands stronger core muscles so your spine is supported just so you can hold the body to project the voice mm -hmm. that's all part of our training right alignment and posture and right diaphragmatic breathing all of these things and it's so great now because there's so many visual elements available or interactive 3D models on the web that you can actually see what's happening in your body when you do this. Um, and so that body mapping is really wonderful for singers. I, I love it. Some singers um, are more physical than others or more athletic than others in their approach to their singing. I tend to respond to that athleticism. Like I mentioned, the cardio and... Um, and, but I know some singers that aren't aren't that way as well. So it really just depends on your body. It's finding what works for you and really getting to know yourself and your body and how your voice responds to that. Because it is so different than some other instruments, right? Like I can sit down at a piano and while the humidity may affect the way the hammers are hitting or something like this, you know, as a pianist, that's one thing, but when everything I eat and drink is affecting my instrument because it's a part of my body, that's another thing. I think as I'm getting older, I'm trying to get to a point where I'm not so hyper-focused on everything I'm putting into my body and um, everything, you know, did I miss an hour of sleep last night and letting that get in my mind. I'm just trying to be. And I think now... 
I have enough years under my belt that I'm able, like my experiences as a singer can sort of help me overcome some of those other physical things. But it's definitely, it's definitely a journey. And I think probably unique to every, every singer, every person. Do you feel now that you've had these experiences that you are a better performer now? And do you worry that if your instrument is your body, that there will be a decline in the quality of that um, performance and, and your bodily instrument? Oh, there will be, right? A lot of singers um, retire, uh, well, again, different for different types of voices, but late 50s, some people sing into their 80s. Usually those are lower voices and that's, 80s is like pretty rare that you would be going that long. You think about dancers and their the lifetime of their career is so much shorter and when they're so much younger, right? Um, so yeah, I know that it's going to change or it's going to go away at some point. Um, and I don't know if I'm a better performer because of all of those experiences, but I think I'm a different performer because of all of those experiences. And and I think it does come with just age and getting to know myself better that I maybe approach it a little bit differently. And that's just because I've changed. <laughs> I'm a different performer than when I was 18 years old, you know? <laughs> I, I may have seen you performing in Opera Omaha. I, I, it's I possible. probably have. Yeah, yeah probably um, have. How I came across you recently as a performer was as part of the Omaha Under the Radar Festival. Mm -hmm. You were performing a couple of pieces as part of that, and um, one in particular with, with a collaborator, Seth Schaefer, I wanted to talk about. Mm -hmm. And the piece was called Are You Okay? As I was saying sort of off-air, when, when I tried to describe that to people, uh, I have said something like it begins as this highly expressive form of bubblegum pop, and there's this self-aware satire to it. And it's entertaining and enjoyable, and the quality is high. And that's great as it slowly then becomes more discomforting and increasingly disturbing to the point where I'm using language like psychopathic. And I found that performance to be absolutely riveting. Thank you. Not doing this justice, I wonder if I could ask you to share a little bit about the context of this performance and, and what goes into the performance. Yeah, for sure. And at some point, I want to ask you more about your word psychopathic and, and how you, like really where you felt that in the piece, because that had not occurred to me, but I love... I love that you're using that. Um, yes. So the process for the piece was so fantastic because I love working with living composers. And so Seth composed the piece. And it was really his idea to go with this hyper pop. You know, he's sent me some recordings of the artist Sophie. And I said, oh, my gosh, I'm so into this. Yes, let's do it. And um, he created the text from running all of her song texts through a randomizer kind of software. I'm not explaining it well, but it, it spit out, the computer spit out all of this text from, from that. And um, that's where he chose the text from. 
And we were really kind of exploring some of the absurd in this piece. Yes. And as you mentioned at the top, it is a very much bubblegum pop. And then there are these moments where you sort of break out as the narrator, like you're narrating on hyper pop and the genre. Um, and so there's some spoken monologue in the piece. And then this middle section, which I think is what you're talking about as psychopathic, um, there's these more ethereal kinds of sounds. I, I think it sounds kind of like you're floating through space. Uh, there's a text about wish dream. And and so all of a sudden we're sort of transported into this, this other world. And then the last section keeps saying, um, how far is too far? That's what I want to know. And I think that encapsulates it, right? Because that's hyperpop is an exaggerated, an exploration of exaggerated pop. This is a step beyond exaggerated pop into really exploring um, what that is. And so Seth and I had a lot of conversations about this process uh, throughout. And then we came together and and rehearsed, you know, only for a short while, actually. Uh, another cool thing I want to tell you that happens in the middle section where there's there was a lot of movement. He gave me a a ring and it was controlling the quadraphonic sound system. And so sort of the movements are making the sound move around the room for the listener's experience, which I think is another super cool thing that you might not notice upon first hearing. So I feel like I kind of weaved around that. I'm not sure if I answered your question. No, this is great because you're okay. setting the scene. I also want to invite you to share some of the visual experience that was happening at the same time because you weren't just performing vocally. There was a highly performative aspect to this, it felt like. Yeah, um, there is a YouTube. I will I will share it with you if you want to link it in your notes. If that's something in your show notes, you can uh, in case people are interested. But yes, part of that was uh, we talked about, Seth and I talked about, should we have a choreographer? Ultimately, there wasn't time in our process to bring on a choreographer. So what Seth did is he went and he took excerpts of moves from Sophie videos and he put those into the score. So there are these little images in the score that say, do this type of movement here. And then some of it is also improvised. Um, and again, my collaborator and in-law, Jeremy, <laughs> uh, we were in Florida on a family vacation and we were sitting at the, the pool doing these movements. He's helping me kind of navigate how to how to craft this. So that was the kind of the the visual aspect and also thinking, right, that exaggeratedness, right? There is a visualness, there is a performative aspect. And part of that, we were trying to explore the difference between here's an outward expression that's being put on you that maybe feels um, insincere. And then there are moments of introspection and complete vulnerability and uh, hopefully authenticity, right? That kind of go back and forth between between those two modes, which I again, I think gets at the how far is too far. My guest today is the singer Shelby Van Nordstrand. 
we've been talking about her performance of the piece titled Are You OK? at the Omaha Under the Radar Festival. You can watch a video of that performance on YouTube. The link to that YouTube video is in the show notes to the podcast of this show, which you can find on our website, livesradioshow.com. And I'd encourage you to go and watch it. I like that idea that you just shared too about the back and forth and these two modes because it seemed to me as a listener that there was some degree, it wasn't call and response, but it was more like a conversation. And I think I recall that part of that is because your voice or someone's voice had been cloned or was being interjected as part of this performance. And so it felt as if at some point uh, towards the latter part of this, you as a character in this performance was having some kind of dialogue with someone that also seemed to be you. And it was that bifurcation, that, dare I say, schizophrenic performance part that that was super discomforting. And it felt wrong at a human level. Mm. Saying how far is too far and are you okay didn't feel, as you say, sincere. It It felt insincere. And that was what made me feel psychologically uncomfortable because it wasn't right but it was beautiful yeah that's right on I mean from my perspective of like how how I was thinking about it of it is kind of a dialogue between maybe two personalities I hadn't thought of it in that specific term of oh maybe it's two personalities I just thought of it as someone exploring you know the different ways that they might interact with the world so maybe that's not different but yeah. I don't know. How far is too far? That's what I want to know. But that that explains your like your psychopathic comment, right? That it was sort of maybe a break from that person's reality and then flipping back into a different reality. Yeah. I think absolutely that that was uh that was a part of it. This feels like and maybe I'm stretching this too far, but you talked earlier that auditioning for roles is perhaps something that for now is not an endeavor you want to pursue. You do want to explore different ways to examine stories, different way to invite an audience into considering alternative perspectives on on these forms. Mm-hmm. So maybe this uh, Are You OK piece we just talked about fits into that. Is there anything else that you, especially in your sabbatical, anything else that you feel this is a story and this is a medium that I'm exploring to share with people? Well, I think the other medium that I explore is as an opera director. So I'm the director of UNO Opera Theater. We do a show each spring. Um, Last spring we did two one acts by living composers, both about um, sort of historically marginalized populations and their stories on the transcontinental railroad, the U.S. transcontinental railroad. And so that was so enjoyable and incredible for me to be able to bring these stories of, first of all, you know, two shows that aren't, they're not Tosca, right? They don't have that name recognition of, oh, UNO Opera Theater is doing Tosca. No, we're doing No Ladies in the Ladies Book and Completing the Picture, you know? Um, So that's another way in which I'm thinking about what are these stories and how can we tell them? And I'm 
thinking about our show for for this coming spring, which I can't say yet. Um, but you know, thinking about it's a more traditional show, and thinking about how can we again update this narrative or examine this from a 21st century viewpoint, and then tell that story to the audience uh, and and see how they perceive it or or what they come away with. We talked earlier about identity and how how identity for you connects in many ways with music and musical expression and that form of creativity. But then you reflected too that you're on sabbatical and you've already found that teaching is something you miss. And, and maybe this is transitory and sort of by the end of your sabbatical, you'll never want to go back. I don't know. You know <laughs> who knows, right? Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? But you are a teacher yeah. of voice and music. And I just wanted to ask, to what degree is teaching important to you? How does it influence your degree of uh, fulfillment in this endeavor? That's such a great question. And I probably should have included that when you, in, your, in the previous question of like, how else are you thinking about this work? absolutely I'm doing this as a teacher all the time, right? Um, and one of the ways that I, it's a very external way I'm thinking about this as an example is um, this work we've been doing with historically marginalized composers and we have this great service learning project where our students are learning a piece of uh, by a composer and or poet of uh, from a historically marginalized population because a lot of this music in the especially in the classical canon is not it's not known it's, therefore it's not performed and you know it's kind of this cyclical thing right so um we're trying to bring more voices into the canon more perspectives and so our students learn the piece and then they make a little presentation about the piece and about how to learn the piece and then we share that with some high school students and they learn the piece and then the end step was the high school students performed those pieces at a community place. It's a really great project, but that's a way in which we're thinking about how do we keep telling stories, but making sure we're telling not just one type of story or not just one perspective of a story um, because of like publishing historically has been in classical music of a lot of white men. And um, so that only really tells one perspective. I love that image of you as a three-year-old dancing, <laughs> big strides, feeling very proud. And here you are today. And I wonder, as you reflect on who you are today, how do you feel you've been changed by the stories you've examined, the music you've performed, the music you've consumed, the music you've created and shared with publics. How are you a different person? I'm more empathetic and I'm more tolerant. And I think that's one of the big joys and one of the things I'm so thankful and grateful for in my life is through this experience to study and explore this music and also to travel in a lot of different places and share music with people in a lot of different places, I've learned a lot more about perspective and how mine is so limited by myself, right? And if I can learn perspectives of other people, that that 
helps me connect more to humans, to be more empathetic to other humans, and to be more tolerant. And I think that we need a lot more of that in our world. So I think it's so important. <laughs> it's like the most important work just through the guise of music. I'm working on an album, actually. That's my sabbatical project. Probably should have mentioned that earlier. Um, and I'm working with a composer friend who has written a lot of things for me over the years. We're recording three song cycles, and one of them is totally new. It's uh, titled Sea Creatures. And it's um, all of these poems that are in the public domain uh, about humans and their relationship to the sea or sea creatures in the sea. And yesterday I was, I was practicing one. And one of the lines is, but I would not move to accomplish these or any other things. <laughs> Which I think in the first part of the poem, it, uh, it, it talks about how, you know, I would just give my love and my whole being to the whole world but I would not move to accomplish these or any other things. And in our last rehearsal, my collaborator said something like, you know, everybody on the human planet has felt this way in the last seven minutes. I want to do all the things and I want to do none of the things. Maybe that's enough of, of, a, of a tidbit of a performance. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. My guest today has been Shelby Van Nordstrand. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. You've got two minutes to make me a better singer. What is it that they say? I, I'm a musician, not a magician. No. <laughs> okay, I'll give you five. <laughs> Lives is hosted and produced by me, Stuart Chittenden, and brought to you by KIOS, Omaha Public Radio. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening.